IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we review new albums by Arctic Monkeys and Dry Cleaning. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I wonder if he's pulling for the Padres or the Phillies. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, last night the Padres were the biggest one-hit wonder out of San Diego since Iron Butterfly. Was that was that a Dennis Miller voice? I I, I don't know if like our audience that, can get. That's like George Burns, yeah. I think. That was uh, like, hey babe, the guy be like, hey babe, dad, what's up with the Padres, babe? You got you got to get throw like a bunch of babes in there if you're going to be doing Dennis Miller. I'm basically doing Dana Carvey's impersonation of Dennis Miller, but hey babe, hey babe. Dennis Miller, that I think my impersonation is terrible, but it's way better than mine. I think it was better. <laughs> it was better than yours. Um, can I just say because we're starting off this episode, we're going to do a, a mini sports cast episode right at the top here. We did sports cast last week, and I believe I said that I thought the Padres had momentum and that they could beat the Dodgers. And I'm basing this entirely on listening to sports podcasts. I did not watch a single baseball game this year until the playoffs, but I listen to sports podcasts every week, so I, you know, I'm aware of how you know teams are and who's on the rise and who's not. Padres they beat the 111 win Dodgers to advance, and the Phillies they beat the defending champs atlanta braves they're in now we have the two ian cohen (laughs) this is the ian cohen subway series here because you live in san diego and you grew up in philly were you born in philly i was indeed born in philadelphia wow philadelphia born and raised that's correct yeah it's interesting because uh on friday or not friday on sunday I watched the Eagles game at a Eagles bar in San Diego, and you just see like this fascinating type of guy hybrid where there's like the Brian Dawkins jerseys, but they're wearing Nixon watches and like board shorts and vans. Um, it's but there's there's dozens of us, quite literally, in San Diego. That's like the Fresh Prince arc. Like you start <laughs> in Philadelphia and you end up in Southern California. There's a bunch of Fresh Princes. Living in Southern California, you're not in Los Angeles, I guess. You're in San Diego, but still close enough. I'm in the middle of the country. It's all the same to me. Um, Eagles, by the way, not to pivot up. We'll get back to the Padres and Phillies. Do you have faith that this is for real with the Eagles? They're looking good. They're undefeated. The NFC is terrible, including my team, the Green Bay Packers. Awful team. Yeah. We we stink. We are dreadful. Can I just say that? If I were to rank my least favorite sports franchises, at least two of like the top like top ten would be the Giants and the Jets. I hate New York <laughs> NFL teams, the most unwatchable teams ever. But because they're in New York, we have to hear about these garbage teams. And this year, they're both pretty good, and they beat the Packers on consecutive weeks. Just awful. It's like. Not only do we look like dog shit, but we have to lose to these boring-ass New York NFL teams. I feel my voice rising already. This is the fun about doing sports casts, because we can get the sports talk radio, uh, you know, emotion. You know, indie rock is more laid back. We can be total sports talk radio here. 
Yeah, uh, I've are, never. Are heard... you feeling good about the Eagles though? Like, are the Eagles for real? You think? I mean, I think they're about as real as you can get in the NFL. Where, like, I would say ninety percent of the league currently is unwatchable. But I want to take this opportunity. Like, I've done the Philly sports talk radio guy. Uh, numerous times on this episode. It's one of my favorite recurring bits. I mean, is there an equivalent for, like, the Packers? Because, you know, they're not the type of team that's like, oh, we got to go, like, except for Reggie White, I guess. Like, oh, we got, like, why don't we go ahead and uh, uh, trade Aaron Rodgers for, for Tom Brady? And oh, again, this is just a terrible accent. I have no fucking idea what the accent They, look, no. Sports Talk Radio everywhere is a bastion of insanity. If... You're listening to like Wisconsin Sports Talk Radio after the Packers lose. You're definitely gonna get like, uh, you know, Herb from Pulaski. Like, <laughs> get in. What the heck is going on with this guy? He's dating all these like famous ladies, and he's doing these commercials, and then he can't get on the field. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. So yeah, Herb from Pulaski, sounding off, big time. About the Packers right now, and justifiably so. I'm basically heard from Pulaski at this point when it comes to the Packers. Just a dreadful team, an unlikable team, too. Rodgers rolling his eyes after overthrowing people in the flat <laughs> every single time. Just awful. Uh, but anyway, let's get back to uh, uh, Philly's Padres here. Are you on the Padres train, or are you like going hometown like Philly's? Well, you know, I think as like a Packers fan, you know, you might relate to one team being kind of the only game in town, although like the there is nowhere near like the Padres are nowhere near sewn into the fabric of the community as the Packers are. But you know what? Like Philly's got a lot of good stuff going on. The Sixers are great. The Eagles are great. The Flyers exist. You know, hockey, everyone makes the playoffs. And it's like for San Diego, I don't know. Like, I'd rather see them win this particular series, if only to, like, draw a spotlight on San Diego in a way that hasn't really happened. Gosh, I don't know, like, ever. I mean, like, Anchorman might have been the last time that San Diego did something that, you know, the nation as a whole paid attention to. I had this conversation the other day, and people were like, well, you know, we have, like, great weather, and, you know, it's, like, really beautiful here. But, like, that's true all the time. Uh, Like, I am just welcoming the smattering of, like, San Diego jokes I've seen so far. And, like, I welcome it all. Like, I want people, like, I want to know what the stereotypes are for San Diego. Because, you know what? Like, most of them are probably pretty true. (laughs) I mean, look, I'm pulling for the Padres. I like that team. I like the fact that they haven't won a World Series before. I like that they were an underachieving team in the regular season. And now they're turning it on in the playoffs. Although, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. Mm-hmm. Game one was Tuesday night. The Phillies won two zip. There's a game Wednesday afternoon. So by the time this posts, because I think game three is, is Friday night. It is. So by the time this posts, Phillies could be up two zip or it could be tied. It's in San Diego. I would think that they'll tie it. I hope so. I would think that will be 1-1 going into a game three. I hope they tie it because... If they're down 2-0 going into Philly, that Philly stadium looks like a madhouse. It's crazy. The people... It's insane. During the po- during the, the game on Saturday night where uh, the, game's, the game, uh, I guess, would have been game four, the Padres clinched, like, I would hear the announcers talk about, like, it's an insane asylum in Petco Park. And, 
you know, it's just like people like acting super chill, but like they're excited. Like there's, they've, they've, ne- I've never seen a peep like people happier to be at a baseball game. Whereas if you watch the Phillies game earlier that day, it was like straight up like a mosh pit the entire time. Uh, it, it, you just can't equate how people in San Diego get excited compared to how people in Philly get excited, which, you know what? It's a great contrast in styles. Uh, I don't think, oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think, you know, uh, you can root against either of these teams. So it, it's good for, as opposed to the, as opposed to the AL, which is like the Astros and the Yankees, the two least likable teams in major league baseball, aside from the Cardinals. Yeah. If the Phillies win, I'm, I'm fine with that. Oh, I, I, I'm just pulling for the, I'm pulling for the Padres. I think it'd be cool for them uh, to make it to the world series. I was thinking, you know, to, to bring this back to music, because we're going to be now transitioning slightly out of sports cast into indie cast. Uh, you know, I, as you may know, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I recently wrote a book about Pearl Jam. Uh, <laughs> it's called Long Road. And uh, Eddie Vedder, famous baseball fan, loves the Cubs, but he also has a big San Diego part of his history. Lived in San Diego for a long time. That's where he got his start in music. That's where he was when he got the Mama San tape that. Got him into Pearl Jam, all the mythology with that. He went surfing in San Diego and wrote some of the biggest songs in Pearl Jam history after that. Um, he doesn't seem to have any affinity for the Padres. None. I've never heard him talk about the Padres. And I'm curious about that. I mean, he can't jump allegiances at this point. He can't be like Drake, <laughs> just showing up to every game. No matter, like, whoever's winning, that's, like, where Drake shows up to. <laughs> I feel like Eddie Vedder, he's, he's ride or die with the Cubs. But yeah. I just wonder if, if, if he ever had a phase as a teenager, like, where he was wearing, like, a Tony Gwynn jersey for a while, you know, just dabbled in it and then ultimately decided to go with the Padres. I believe that there was a Padres-Cubs series in 84. Mm-hmm. I think they played each other in the playoffs. Am I wrong with that? I think you're correct. That was, like... The, the Padres have been to the World Series twice in their history and got swept one time and won one game the other time. And you're talking about, like, the Tony Gwynn, Steve Garvey era. Uh, you know, that like, yes. that one blip of national relevance. You know, like, I imagine that, I don't know, Eddie Vedder being, like, from my understanding, like a sullen team, probably doesn't want to identify with, you know, the local baseball squad, although... In many ways, Eddie Vedder is like the prototypical Sandy Hagen, like the kind of guy who literally writes songs going surfing, um, you know, worked at the Chevron and like hung out at like all the like the trashy uh, rock places. But, you know, I think that like I- I'm just a li- and also I just think that it's kind of funny that like the band that got accused of ripping off Pearl Jam, like Stone Temple Pilots, was an actual San Diego band. Um Right. Although you've said that you've said that San Diego doesn't really claim STP because in my mind they're the biggest band from San Diego. But but I think you've said that like they they haven't been embraced in the same way other San Diego bands have. Well, I think that they they're embracing the fact that they're a popular '90s act and that's that always plays well in San Diego. But like they they you know I think of like Scott Weil and it like more in terms of like Velvet Revolver. Like they just seem more like a Hollywood sort of band. Um, but you know, San Diego, it's, it's funny when I think about like what growing up in Philadelphia, as opposed to like living here in San Diego now, like in the nineties, as hard as it is to believe right now, like San Diego was so much cooler 
than Philadelphia. Like, when I was growing up, like, yeah, we had Ween, but, like, the only bands I knew about that, like, identified as Philly were, like... Hold on a sec. Ween is from New Hope, though. They're not from Philly. I mean, how close is New Hope to Philly? Pretty close. I mean, like, Spirit... Like, Freedom of 76 is a Philly song. I would say that, like... I suppose. Yeah. I, look, back then, we were pretty desperate. I mean, like, we were like, oh, cool. Like, g Love and <laughs> Special Sauce were blowing up. Oh, the Bloodhound Gang. They're a local band. God Lives Underwater has Boys that one song. What's that? Boys to Men, man. Boys to Men, Motown Philly. You know, that was the shit in the 90s. It, you had you had, you had had Boys to Men. And Fresh Prince, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so you weren't bumping, you weren't bumping, uh, you know, Motown Philly back no, in the day? Oh, absolutely, I was. If you went to any bar mitzvahs at that time, which I did, you would hear, you know, <laughs> you would hear Boys to Men all over the place as immortalized in the Ween song Spirit of 76, but... Um, I, I, oh, I'm yeah. one, I'm I, I love I, that was the days too, like where they wore like the red sports jackets in the in the blue jeans. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think I think they all wore that. That was a great uniform. Very early nineties. I, I want to know if like have you ever watched It's Gonna Blow? It's like the San Diego version of a uh, hype. <laughs> no, I have not. I didn't. I didn't know that San Diego would have been big enough to warrant a hype style documentary for those who don't know hype it's a movie made in 96 about seattle uh so but but san diego had their own sort of like documentary about how things were getting overblown in the local music scene absolutely because you know after seattle blew up like every just about every single city uh in america had its run as like the next seattle and uh you know san diego like in the early 90s i mean it, screamo was more or less invented there there was like a time where it was like white belts and spock haircuts like that was the shit back then um but you know you had like drive like jehu rocket from the crypt like the locust um the early rapture and yeah there was like a time where major labels were like sniffing around san diego for these bands um and you know like later on you had like pinback and blackheart procession um cattle decapitation like san diego had not only like a pretty cool music scene but like a really abrasive music scene like one that like really cuts against everything that you would expect nowadays because you know most people's like view of san diego music is based on like some combination of you know blink 182 slightly stupid pod i think people just assume sublime is from san diego like uh you know or yeah they seem very san diego yeah. To me. Like, the, the, the very strong San Diego vibe was sublime. You know, one band you're leaving out here in the in, in the San Diego rock lineage, Switchfoot. Oh, One yeah. of the great Christian rock <laughs> bands of the last 25 years. Uh, I don't know if Riley Walker is listening right now. He's a big <laughs> Switchfoot acolyte. Uh, so, yeah, they're holding it down in the screamo scene, in the grunge scene, in the Christian rock scene. Uh, and now they have a good baseball team. So, yeah, I'm pulling for the Padres. If the Phillies win, that's cool too. We have a lot of, I'm sure, Philadelphia indie rockers listening to this show. Although I feel like they're more football. I don't really hear indie rockers talk much about baseball. I, I feel like it's more Eagles and Sixers. But mm. maybe you're jumping on the Phillies bandwagon too. Uh, that ends our episode of SportsCast. Aww. We will now start IndieCast here by getting into our mailbag segment. Thank you all for listening and writing into our show. Uh, you can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, today's question is actually well-timed because it's setting up a theme 
for this episode that I feel like we're going to return back to throughout. So we have an unintentional theme episode in a way being set up by this letter. So do you want to read this letter, Ian? Indeed I do. So this comes to us from Patrick in Riverside. I was just leaving a little gap there to see if you were going to do a pain lies by the Riverside uh, joke. I know you've been posting live <laughs> t-shirts of late, but whatever. We we don't have that. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. No, the- not, uh, that's, that's a good point. I guess I'm just thinking of live being by a Riverside in Pennsylvania. Uh, by the way, live. They're, they're, they're from York. Not close, to, as a, not close to Philly. Are they closer to Pittsburgh? I would say closer. They're like in the middle of the state. They're like almost closer to Maryland. Um, I would like they really were very middle proud. of the state. I feel like them being from York, that was a big thing for them. I think they actually have a shirt <laughs> saying that they're from York. Like they were, they were just waving the flag for York. <laughs> uh, is it, What famous industries in York? Isn't there like a... Uh, some famous business. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you're this thinking a of terrible... Scranton. I don't fucking know. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we should cut this part out or leave it in for no. the uh, awkward comedy value of it. Uh, anyway, why don't right. you uh, read the letter here from Patrick? All right. So, hi. Hey, Stephen and Ian. Or Steve and Ian. And probably I'll be seeing UK bands, the House of Love, Suede, and the Manic Street Preachers in the Los Angeles area within two weeks of each other. The London Suede, if you happen to be from the U.S. Uh, I've never seen any of them live. These three groups never had much of a following in the U.S. and all peaked in the 90s. That being said, I've always gravitated to the U.K. rock sound over the U.S. indie rock sound. In high school, as someone who didn't quite get Nirvana, it was refreshing to hear Oasis. The Killers are one of my favorite U.S. bands because they so often sound British. Both of you enjoy bands from either side of the Atlantic. How would you describe the differences between U.S. indie and U.K. indie rock? The sound, the culture, etc. Regards, Patrick in Riverside, California. Yes, thank you for that question. And yeah, this does relate to what we're going to be talking about in this episode because we're talking about two big bands from the UK, or I should say one huge band from the UK and one band that is on the rise in the UK. Um, so I was thinking about this question, you know, what are the differences between U.S. indie and U.K. indie? And I really think it's bigger than just indie rock. I think you can just talk about rock music in general, going back to the Beatles. Uh, and I think the thing that has always distinguished British rock bands in comparison to American rock bands is that British rock bands have always embraced the idea that you should be looked at as much as listened to, mm. that you should look as cool as you sound. There's a stylishness, I think, to British bands that is inherent throughout the history of British rock that is different from America. I think America has always resisted affectation, pretension, or at least the perception of being viewed as pretentious. Uh, And British bands always lean into that, I think. And there is something appealing about that if you like a more theatrical type of music. You know, like when I think about indie rock, going back to like the early days of indie rock in the 80s, the quintessential 80s UK indie band is probably the Smiths. And the quintessential American band from the indie world at that time would probably be like The Replacements or R.E.M. And I think you can see what I'm talking about when you look at those bands. You have The Smiths, 
they have very stylized album covers. You have Morrissey, you know, mm-hmm. throwing the daffodils around. Uh, there's a certain, I think, uh, I think there's less of a hang-up in with British bands about embracing new technology and embracing different kinds of music that isn't just straight down the middle rock music. I think you can see that with the Smiths as well. And I think that just carries through to what we hear today. Uh, I think British bands are typically a little more forward thinking than American bands. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that like in our conversation today. Um, whereas Americans, I think we always kind of go back to a core idea, whether it's, you know, folk music or the blues or punk music, mm. you know, something that's more simple and direct. I think that's what Americans are. And, Brit- and, and the Brits don't have those kind of roots, so they can maybe go in more different directions. Does what I'm saying make any sense to you? Like, do you agree with what I'm saying? Or like, wh- like what would you say distinguishes UK versus US indie? Totally. I think that, I think you hit it right there. And I also, I'm like getting the sense that Patrick might be our age because, you know, in high school, someone didn't quite get Nirvana as refreshing to hear Oasis. And, you know, this kind of aligns with what you were talking about in your Pearl Jam book where liking one of the most popular bands on planet earth could still constitute like some form of rebellion just because there were so few options. Um, there was a great onion article from back in the day. I remember call it the headline. I think it was just like one that was just the headline that said British girl exotic enough. And you know, that was like my approach to UK <laughs> bands throughout the nineties and early two thousands. Like I didn't know jack shit about indie rock but if I wanted to differentiate myself from my peers, like liking UK bands was just like some wild shit. It doesn't matter if like Wonderwall or Champagne Supernova was playing constantly on MTV. Uh, you know, like it, it's one thing to like Oasis, but like the Verve, like holy shit, they might as well have been pavement. And that right. <laughs> well, and I think and I think with Oasis too, they're the most straightforward of those British bands of the nineties, if you compare them to the verve or especially blur or pulp Mm -hmm. or suede, you know, like those other bands I think are more of like what I was saying before, more theatrical, more willing to embrace music outside of just straightforward rock. Whereas Oasis was a band that you could play in a bar (laughs) in the middle of the country and their songs made sense playing next to like whatever classic rock song was playing before or after it. And I think that's why Oasis was way bigger than those other bands. You know, like in America, like the mainstream, like rock dude is always going to be a little skeptical Mm -hmm. of a dude like Jarvis Cocker (laughs) or, you know, like Brett Anderson from suede, you know, there's going to be some resistance from like the, the plaid wearing, 37 year old dude from Iowa, you know, like they're not going to, a lot of those guys aren't going to embrace that. But Oasis, I think was more palatable to people like that. Wait, what was the guy, Hugh from Pulaski or something like that? <laughs> Herb from Pulaski. Herb from yeah. Pulaski Herb from, yeah. He, he bought, what's the story of morning glory, but he did not buy, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a pulp album title, his and hers. He did not buy his and hers back <laughs> in the day, but he did buy, uh, what's the story of Morning Glory? Yeah, I think back to, um, you know, particularly that late 90s, early 2000s era where it's like, I want to buy as many UK band albums as possible. They use strings and synthesizers in their music. Like, that stuff was just so radical to me um, back then. But even nowadays, I think there's still um, the biggest difference 
you know, aside from like the aesthetics or like just the cleverness or like the disposition is that I think a lot of the bigger uh, UK indie acts are actual bands um, as opposed to, you know, the United States where like the bands at the level of say idols or wet leg and like, let's just be abundantly clear. These bands are fucking huge. Uh, like even right. in America, like they play big venues out here, even like the landfill shit, like sports team, and, like yard act. Um, those are bands. Whereas I think the band, the acts at this level in America tend to be, you know, solo artists who kind of get folded into bands, you know, like Japanese breakfast or Mitski or things like that. And, um, I do sense like more, I don't know, like a progressiveness from UK acts, like even the ones I don't like, um, I still can listen to them and think, okay, well, they're trying to do something new here and maybe I'll like them, you know, later on because I mean, some of the acts like this year, like, you know, Black Country, New Road, Jockstrap, Gilla Band, that album that just came out, like I did not like them like a year or two years ago, but they just kept progressing in a way that now I'm like, <laughs> whenever I'm like tired of like US bands, like trying to replicate Veruca Salt or Third Eye Blind for the 88th time, you know, they, these sound like really refreshing and like trying to actually do some new shit. And so uh, I tend to be a little more um, patient with them in their progression than I do with like American bands who I could just see. Yeah, I know what this is happening here. This kind of sucks. Uh, good luck with all that. And again, I think it's also a lot of these British bands, past and present, are fun to look at. You know, even <laughs> bands that aren't, like you said, especially progressive like idols i don't think is necessarily musically progressive but whether you like them or not like they put on a show they do you know they they are gonna grab your attention if you see them at a festival the lead singer is you know very visually grabby they have that guitar player dude that like strips down to his underwear and runs around the stage very grabby you know a band like wet leg very strong aesthetic visually i mean they are fun to look at on stage they have a certain glamorous charisma to them that I think a comparable American band might not have or like feel more self-conscious about embracing. You know, again, I think with a lot of American bands, there's a self-consciousness about performance hmm. that British bands, I, I feel like they don't have that, you know? Uh, they're not as... Like British bands generally, they don't seem as fearful of like looking silly or again, pretentious or affected. You know, this is something that they feel like we're in a band. We're gonna do this. We're gonna totally buy in, and uh, even if it doesn't work, at least it's entertaining. You know, like it's impossible to think of a an American band going as over the top as Muse, for instance, to bring up an indie cast favorite reference here. <laughs> there are ridiculous prog rock bands in America, but I don't know. I just feel like. The way they go for it, it seems uniquely British to me. I think the, the the American bands who go prog tend to not be in conversation with the mainstream in the same way that like Muse is. Like prog rock in America, that's like just like kind of like uh, compartmentalized outside. Like it, 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 you could go without prog rock, whereas in the UK, perhaps I don't know, maybe it's like the uh, long tail influence of Genesis or something like that. But I'm like totally open to the idea that like we're getting this completely wrong and that we're just going to get this like litany of emails and uh, letters from our 
you know, UK listeners talking about like how we completely, we had this like just completely reductive take on them. Well, you know, they might see Americans in a different way than, than we would just as they would see their, their, you know, home field teams differently. You know, I'm sure Americans seem more exotic to them (laughs) in the same way that that British bands seem exotic, uh, exotic to us. So, and obviously there's a long history of Americans, making it bigger over there first and then coming back here, you know, from like Jimi Hendrix to the strokes to, I can't think of a more modern example, although I'm sure (laughs) there is, but all again, like, you know, if you think about Hendrix and the strokes being two big examples of Americans that hit it big in England and then the British buzz helped sell them in America, they look great. You know, they wrote great music, Hendrix and the strokes, but they also have a very strong, visual aesthetic you know you want to look at them as much as listen to them and i I just think yeah the brits are really good at that all right well let's get to the meat of our episode uh we're going to be continuing the conversation here about uk bands with our first album that we're reviewing today which is the car and it's the seventh record by arctic monkeys it's their first album in four years uh i wrote about this album this week uh it's a record that I really came to enjoy, uh, which will probably not surprise Ian because I was a big fan of the previous Arctic Monkeys record, Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, which came out in 2018. That was my favorite album of that year, and I've revisited it recently, uh, and I still love that record. Um, I have a lot to say about the car, but I feel like I've already said it in my review which, if you haven't read it, please go to Uprox and, and check it out. I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Ian. Uh, you have a much different opinion of Arctic Monkeys than I do, as well, you know, as you feel differently about Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, and I assume you're also not a fan of the car. Am I being presumptuous here? Do you actually love this record, and are you going to surprise me with a positive take on the Arctic Monkeys? I kind of wish I did like this album more. Like I was like kind of prepared to, you know, I, I, I love a buy low candidate when it comes to indie rock. Like I love getting into bands when like they have kind of slipped from the consciousness. Like one of these days, I don't know, we're doing IndieCast in 2026. And it turns out I really love the new Ice Age album or something like that. Um, but with Arctic Monkeys, you know, it's been an uphill battle since the beginning. I feel like they are kind of a generation gap band for me. Like I, I know for a fact if I was like 10 years younger in 2006, I would have loved that first album. Uh, but, you know, I think I heard it as like, you know, just another British band with a dumb name and a lot of hype. And uh, I liked I Bet You Look Good on, on the Dance Floor. But like uh, otherwise, it just, you know, the sound didn't quite appeal to me. And, you know, I, I could appreciate their consistency, but they never changed in a way that really you know, drew me in. And I did try with Tranquility uh, in 2018 solely because, you know, they were doing something so different that perhaps uh, it would allow me to hear them in a different way. But when you took away, like, the rock music, all it left was this sort of thing that, like, really repelled me in the beginning, which is that, and this is going to come up with our next conversation as well. But like the one thing that I have a lot of trouble connecting with in music is cleverness. Um, you know, particularly when it's done in a way that's like also like louche or suave. Like, 
you know, I, I feel like that's kind of true of like power pop. I think that's true of like the lineage of Roxy music that like leads down to pulp and Franz Ferdinand. Um, yeah, it just does not connect with me, which is really weird because I would figure like, you know, out of the both of us, I am the one who's lived on the coasts, whereas you are the, you know, the Midwest, you, you are locking down the Midwest. Um, but you know, well, yeah, I, maybe you're, you're already marinating and sweat and suave, you know, <laughs> living out there in Southern California, you, you, you see suave on every street corner there. Whereas I have to connect with records to get my allotment of suaveness. So maybe that's why we have different, uh, feelings about this. I want to just ask you quick about the cleverness thing. Cause this has come up before we, not just with Arctic monkeys, but with other things. So like, because when we talk about cleverness, I think of a band like Los Campesinos, for instance. I think that they are like a clever band if we wanted to find clever as a band that has funny lyrics. Why aren't they annoying to you? Is it because they are more of an upbeat, punky type band? Like, is that a more acceptable kind of cleverness in your mind? I th- I think you nailed it right there because, I mean, look, I... I love Los Campesinos. You know, I had a huge das racist uh, phase. So clever, like it's cleverness in conjunction with like coolness, you know, because um, yeah, Los Campesino lyrics are like hyper referential, but they're about like food and soccer and uh, indie rock or so forth. Like I never view them as like trying to be like clever in a cool way in the same way that like, you know, Alex Turner or Jarvis Cocker, um, you know, like Los Campesinos don't strike me as the sort of band that would show up in like GQ ever, unless like the editor happened to really love them. And so, um, yeah, I just can't, I just can't connect with what it is they're doing. And I think that you also hit on a point of, you know, what it, yeah, I'm, I'm like immersed in suave, like especially AM, that album will just always remind me of like Coachella. Like it, not not even just like the the sense of being there, but like the crowd and just like the relationship with music. It, it just does not appeal to me, and like that doesn't mean that they're not good at what they do. It's I don't know. If I were younger, I would just talk about how like Arctic Monkeys are like kind of like a disease or a plague on music. But now I can just. I don't know. My version of maturity is that I can say, yeah, it's not for me. And the car, it's so not, it's so not for me. I mean, I loved This Is Hardcore when I was 18 when that came out because I thought it made me seem so mature and smarter than my peers. But there's this been this strange turn of events where, um, you know, I loved music like this at an early age because it made me think of like what I would be like as an older you know, wiser person, but now I've actually reached that age and like, I want the verve. I I want like Oasis. I want the dumb shit. Like this just does not connect with me at all. See, my path with this record is that when I first listened to it, I was a little disappointed because, and this is like such a basic impulse with this band, but I was hoping for a little more of like the new Fonzie leather jacketed like rock music of am to filter back into arctic monkeys Mm. i thought that maybe they would have a little bit more of that after the left turn of tranquility base hotel and casino which again is a record i loved but i was also not sure if that was where i wanted them to head permanently the thing i realized listening to the car is that the band that existed on the first five records 
no longer exist. I mean, they do in sort of like a literal sense, but I think, at least on record, I really feel like these last two records are, are like Alex Turner solo records mm. that the other guys happen to play on. And you could see in the way that these records were made that essentially Alex Turner did everything on his own, you know, including write the songs, record instrumentation, reworking uh, the recordings, you know, giving them up to where he wanted them, and then he brought the rest of the guys in. And you wonder to what degree are the other guys even necessary on these records. I think on the car, you know, getting back to the cleverness uh, question, I do feel like Tranquility Bass is more of like a clever record. And I'm putting clever in quote marks. There's a chilliness to that record. And there's also, I think, an, an overt comedic aspect to that record, which again, I really love about that album. But I think it's different than what we're getting on this new Arctic Monkeys record. Even if it is similarly like low key, I think that the feel of this album to me is much different. To me, this is a, it's a warmer record, but it's also a sadder record. If you look at the lyrics, there's a lot of you know references to looking back at your past and wondering how you got to the point where you're at and feeling like you've reached a point in your life where you've moved on from your childhood or your 20s or you're entering a new phase of life. And to me, when I listen to this record, it feels like an ending of sorts. I don't necessarily mean that I think Arctic Monkeys are going to break up after this record, although I wouldn't be shocked if that happened, I mean, I think the reason why this band will continue is that it's such a a bankable brand. You know, like Alex Turner can work under this umbrella and play arenas uh, for a long time. It, he may not be able to do that as just Alex Turner, um, although he could probably do that in the in, in the UK. <laughs> um, but I don't know. There's a melancholy to this record that I think really drew me in over the listens of it and, and writing about it. And I think that does separate it from the predecessor record. And in my mind, it also transcends the sort of cleverness issue that you're talking about, that it's not just about making sly one-liners over, you know, loungy music. I think that there is a real emotional component to this record. And again, like a real melancholy that I think makes it different. And it, it I, I just wonder where they go from here. You know, it, it, I, it's hard for me to believe that they're just going to go back to making, you know, music that sounds great in rum commercials. You know, like, I, I, <laughs> doesn't, I this like... al- doesn't this album sound better in like a rum commercial? Like I'm thinking like uh, the early Arctic Monkeys sound better in a beer commercial, but like for rum or something like a high end liquor, like that's totally tranquility in the car. I think it, it's not really party music though. Like they're like the, the title track is probably my favorite song on the record. And uh, that's a really haunting song. It's this beautiful sort of orchestral folk type uh, music. And then there's like this just tortured guitar solo in the middle of it that just really kind of blows me away every time I listen to it. Um, it doesn't make me want to drink rum. It makes me want to drink like whiskey in a dark room, like that kind of song. So if there's like a whiskey in a dark room commercial, uh, <laughs> maybe this you'll want to play that that song. But, um, you know, again, like I am a big booster of Tranquility Bass. I would encourage people to sit with this record for a bit. I do think it's well-timed with the time of the year. You know, I talk about the Always record being a great fall record. This feels like a great 
fall into winter album. I, it has that vibe to me again. It feels, it has the feeling of an ending to me, not necessarily of the band, but it feels like the end of this phase and we'll see what happens next. I, I just love the idea of a, of a rum, like a rum, like, I don't know, Bacardi or some variant of that, like making commercials with like someone just drinking alone in a dark room, listening to this album. It's like, <laughs> that's what we're going for. We're going for the alone drinker right here. It's like, nope. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's what's going to like change my views on the Arctic Monkeys. I'll stop thinking of them as like a Coachella band and more of like, I don't know, like a, dr- a drinking alone sort of act. Yeah, this is a wintry record to me. And rum is not a wintry drink. I can't imagine a context where you want to drink rum <laughs> by yourself. That is like you're drinking a fruity drink by the pool type liquor. Uh, I don't know. It would just exacerbate your depression, I think, if you were sipping on rum by yourself. Because you would just feel like, I should be partying with this but I'm just a miserable sad sack <laughs> listening to the car. This doesn't work. Uh, let's uh, let's get to our next record here, and it is called Stump Work, and it's by a band called Dry Cleaning. You may remember this band from way back in 2021. <laughs> they put out their debut full-length album, New Long Leg, one of the most acclaimed indie debut albums of that year, maybe the most acclaimed. And, of course, it came after a series of well-received EPs. This is the new record, Stump Work. And this is another band where you and I differ. I feel like I am embracing these stylish UK bands, at least these two particular bands. And I'm wondering if you feel differently about this album. You know, we talked about New Long Leg as being part of this, like, wave of post-punk bands that have come out of England in the last few years, you know, where someone is talking over like loud, clanky, chunky post-punk guitar riffs. And New Long Legs certainly could be grouped under that umbrella. I don't think that the new record would fit under that umbrella because musically this record is, I think, significantly different. Um, it's a quieter record in a lot of ways. It's a more melodic record. You could say that it's more American sounding. I mean, I think the band themselves have said that this record is more influenced by like 90s indie rock. I think they mentioned Pavement specifically as an influence, which you can hear in some of the the guitar tones that exist on this record. Again, it's not quite that more naughty, loud, gnarly sound that you heard on New Long Leg. It's more melodic. It's prettier. But you still have Florence Shaw, the lead singer doing that deadpan monotone vocal over it. Mm. I have to say that I like this record more than I expected. I When I heard New Long Leg, I came around on that record after being turned off initially by the hype. I eventually came to really enjoy that album, but it did make me wonder, how is this band going to move forward? Because this seems like a pretty narrow musical lane that they're in. And it seems like the path forward is, we're just going to change the music that's behind Florence Shaw, and that's how we're going to do it. So maybe the next record's going to be like a trip-hop record <laughs> with Florence Shaw talking over it, and then they're going to do like a country record with Florence Shaw talking over it. You know, Maybe that's going to be the thing, and it's going to be great. I, I'll say that I think that they hit the mark, though, with this second record. I, I, I quite enjoy it. Have, is this the record that made you come around on uh, dry cleaning? I mean, I, I feel like this is like theoretically the kind of album that would make me come around on dry cleaning because 
you know, like one of my one of my top albums of the year is Black Country New Road, which you know had a similar sort of lyrical approach on the second record compared to the first, but just something flipped and you know a band that I really disliked the first time around I like now. Um, you know, when I gave this album like honest listens, yeah, especially I think it's easier for me to like you know enter this record without the hype. Um, you know, I tried. I felt like I enjoyed it more for the reasons that you talked about. Like, even if it does have John Parrish producing, it does have more of a cleaner uh, sort of uh, melodic sound to it. Um, and, you know, like, look, Florence Shaw, she has she's a great lyricist, like, comes up with a lot of great lines. I love looking at them on paper, um, hearing them. Like, it, it, it's good as well. But, like, I... <laughs> This gets to a question that was asked of us uh, in a previous episode where it comes down to how much effort are you willing to expend getting into an album uh, that you don't immediately love. And, you know, if this were 10 years ago and dry cleaning were one of the, you know, like, I think it's fair to say that they are a a list, like, you know, control the narrative type uh, of the year type band. I would have put more effort into this to like be to to at least grasp dry cleaning and have an opinion over it. And now it's like, do I want to listen to this record or do I want to listen to Turnstile again for like the billionth time? Um, And, you know, I guess that just kind of speaks to where I'm at right now. I just don't know if like this record really um, hits the I guess I'm allowed to not like what other people like. Like there's a part of me that feels such guilt that uh, I'm like on the outside of the narrative and not able to appreciate so many of these bands. But, um, you know, like it, it's well, not... Well, I, I, I think that's a totally acceptable and common reaction to this band. It's part of what makes them interesting. And we can link this with our bigger conversation about UK bands that I think Dry Cleaning is another example of a group that is highly stylized. You know, like they have a style that is very distinctive. It's also a style that in its own way is pretty abrasive. It's not abrasive musically. It's not screaming at you with loud guitars. It's abrasive in the sense that this band will irritate a lot of people. Like, they are well-reviewed. Music critics like them. But again, if we're going to talk about Herb and Pulaski, (laughs) we're going to talk about the 37-year-old dude from Iowa in the plaid shirt, this may not be a band that they necessarily connect with. They may love this band. I don't want to, like, you know typecast people i'm just saying that i think that there's a certain cap on how popular this band will be due in large part to florence shaw who i think is also the best part of this band like if you love this band she is the star of the show if you don't like this band she is the thing that's going to turn you off from them but you know she is a person who is so low-key and deadpan that she does have her own charisma it's that old cliche about if you speak softly people will lean in and pay attention to what you're saying. Like, she personifies that to a T. Um, it's just interesting. You you mentioned Black Country New Road or Black Midi, all these bands. They are all love it or hate it type bands. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to kind of be in the middle on them. They're either going to be bands that you connect with because you love what's eccentric about them, or you're going to be like, this is the most irritating shit I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, and I think that's true of all those bands. Yeah. I think with dry cleaning though, um, there's less, a, the, I, I do think that they have the potential to be divisive. 
Um, and, you know, like if you add a little bit of like pop to what they do, you end up with like Wet Leg, who is easily the biggest new band to come out in 2022. But like I have the maybe you're just like hanging in different circles, but I haven't heard that negative reaction to dry cleaning that I have to, you know, Black Country New Road, especially to Black Midi. Um, I think that like with and maybe this is the thing that like turns me off with dry cleaning is that we talked about this concept of like shittiness in regards to the 1975. And I think with a lot of uh, people who like, you know, dry cleaning, especially critics, you can sense that like critics are coming into this with like, they not only like, you know, they're, they're like actively rooting for dry clean, but they like kind of see themselves in Florence Shaw as well. It's like, Oh, they're, they're clever. They're deadpan. They see, you know, the detritus of modern life uh, in all things. I think that there's an identification with dry cleaning that doesn't quite happen with, say, Gilliband or, uh, you know, Black Midi. Like, they seem a lot more alien in their own way. So um, I just think that, like, dry, if, if dry cleaning were more abrasive in the way that you're describing, or at least even, like, personality-wise, um, you know, perhaps I would cotton to that more. Or maybe that's going to happen on album three. Maybe that's the one that does the trick and, like, after... You know, critics are like tired of, you know, praising them for the same stuff. That's when like I'll swoop in and be like the band's defender. I'm I'm always about the buy low. So you don't think that there's people that listen to Black Midi and think, hey, I also sing like a frog and I like crazy <laughs> time signatures. Like this band is is speaking for me. Do you don't think that there's people out there who are who are saying that about Black Midi? I mean, there's gotta be at least a couple people. I connect with them on that level. I think they do, but I don't think like people like see themselves as Georgie Greep, uh, which by the way, I love the opportunity <laughs> to like say this guy's name is like legitimately Georgie Greep. Can you come up with a better fucking name for like an abrasive British post-punk band? I just don't think there's like that same level of like identification with like the human being. Like I don't think they have like a worldview that people tend to, you know, kind of emulate on Twitter to the same degree that they do with like this band or wet leg for that matter. Like for the most part, I think most people have had no fucking idea what black midi are talking about at the time. <laughs> We've now reached the part of our episode that we call recommendation corner where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So we have a very, well, not only a very rare Wednesday recording of IndieCast, but a very rare Wednesday album drop. Um, This is a band that I've talked about on Twitter and on Stereo Gun before called Knife Play. Uh, They are a Philadelphia dark shoegaze dream pop band that's been around since 2019. Um, And they put out today their album Animal Drowning. Uh, I'm all shoegazy dream pop like those qualifiers will almost always make me check out a band but you know i i look back on the i look back on the years and i think about so many bands that i listened to and enjoyed and just completely forgot about after two listens so it's it's easy to like make accessible interesting music in this realm but it's like really hard to make memorable music and so when what knife plate does here uh, makes them stand out in a way that like makes me think this is going to be kind of a landmark in this genre. They not only have like actual hooks and like actual lyrics worth paying attention to, 
just the sound of this record is phenomenal. They work with Jess Ziegler, uh, a Philadelphia guy who's worked on War on Drugs records, A Sunny Day in Glasgow. So, you know, you know it's going to sound like super professional and polished. Um, and they do have like an abrasiveness, a darkness, for lack of a better term, a shittiness that you don't typically hear in dream pop or shoegaze. It's not just bands trying to do, it's not just a band trying to do the same old like My Bloody Valentine or on the other end, like, you know, a Deftones kind of thing. Um, I'm stoked to hear this. There's banjo on it. It reminds me a little bit of like Serena Manish, if you want to remember some guys from 2005 a bit. Uh, some like Red House Painters kind of like uh, gloomy folk happening as well. But, you know, I, I would love to say, hey, it's like perfect for this time of year, but it's like 90 degrees in San Diego today. So if you happen to be on the East Coast, maybe you got that like 50 degree drizzly weather that will make this album totally make a lot more sense. Yeah, right now in Minnesota, it's in like the upper 30s, lower 40s. So it sounds like this record would be good for that. I've checked out this record. I saw Stereo Gum call it one of the best albums of the year in any genre. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it is a it is a good record. Is it fair to say that this is kind of like what Dev what Def Heaven would have sounded like if they had just gone the shoegaze route without any of the black metal stuff? Ooh, I didn't think about that, but um, I I think that's like kind of a fair assessment. So if that interests you at all, like if Def Heaven started out as that kind of band, um, yeah, if that's what gets you involved, I wouldn't. I, and I can imagine Knife Play opening up for. Um, you know, uh, I can imagine a knife play opening up for Death Heaven. They're sort of like, I don't know, maybe more if like Greet Death started out more folky than they did. Right. Oh, definitely a good record worth checking out. Uh, I want to talk about an album, and this is a very long album title. It's called Grow Your Hair Long If You're Wanting to See Something That You Can Change. It's by a singer-songwriter named Kevin Patrick from San Francisco who records under the name Field Medic. Uh, I first uh, wrote about this, uh, this artist back in 2019 when he put out a really good record called Fade Into the Dawn. And he's put out albums since then, and he put out several records before that. He's a very prolific artist. And to me, he, he's really intriguing because on one hand, he's this very online, lo-fi indie musician, and he writes about... Uh, you know, a lot of the things that you would expect someone like that to write about depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, uh, just the sort of modern condition of feeling alienated in this like over mediated technological society. So that's true of him on one hand. And on the other hand, he's an acolyte of Bob Dylan and he's drawing a lot on the, uh, the roots of folk music. And you could tell that he's a student of that. And I love that combination because a lot of times when you listen to folk musicians these days, they're really trying to recreate the past. You feel like they have an archetype in their mind of what a singer-songwriter should be, and it's fixed in, say, the space between like 1962 and 1972. <laughs> and Patrick is able to take that archetype and bring it into the modern age, singing songs that can connect with people now while also drawing on those traditions of the past. And you hear it on all of his records, and I think it really comes through again on this new record, and I'll say the entire album title again. It's called Grow Your Hair Long, if you're wanting to see something that you can change. Uh, if you're looking for a modern version of folk music, something that has the emotional connection that you get from great Bob Dylan records of the 60s, but you want it to feel like now, Listen to Field Medic. This will be right up your alley. 
this new record is really good. A lot of his records are really good. It's a deep catalog. And I think you're really going to like it if that's something you're looking for. I love the fact that if you like take bits and pieces of your description, whether like just the album title and like the things about like depression and suicidal thoughts and like being very online, someone might think you were talking about the 1975. Well, I was going to say that it's a very <laughs> 1975 type album title, but a much different sounding record. So definitely check out that album, Field Medic, really good stuff. We've now reached the part of our episode where we have to say goodbye. So thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box.